So far, in this podcast series, we've talked about what independent primary care is, what different types of consolidation are, different payment models, and how to push back on anti-competitive behavior. Today, I want to explore a different theme that is very relevant for independent practice, the balance between the benefits of consolidation, like economies of scale, and the ever-important negotiation power, and practice autonomy, where physicians have decision-making power over their own workflows and systems. It's relevant especially in the context of widespread healthcare worker burnout, where more autonomy seems to lead to more fulfilled clinicians. And while more research is needed on whether or not burnout can decrease quality of care, less burnout definitely leads to more longevity of practice and continuity of the patient-physician relationship. My name is Lolita Abhyankar. I'm a family physician, and from Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal, where we take a closer look at how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care practices and what that could mean for our healthcare system. I want to cover three topics in today's episode. First, is there an optimal size of practice that can help save healthcare costs? Second, I want to talk about opportunities for independent practices to create alliances with each other in order to potentially reach economies of scale and negotiation power. And finally, to look at how building healthcare infrastructure in terms of data sharing could allow practices to stay autonomous while still connecting with other practices and services to create a truly integrated health system. Last episode, we took some time to talk about how consolidation of primary care, or healthcare in general, could drive up costs. Interestingly, while researching for this podcast, I came across a study that showed how consolidation of primary care physicians could lead to cost saving instead. In order to learn more about the study, I spoke with the author of the paper, Dr. Jonathan Zhang, a professor of health economics at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. The study was conducted with a team of researchers at Stanford, and we had two different aims. The first is we wanted to paint a picture of uh, the extent to which primary care physicians have consolidated into large organizations. And we focus on Medicare claims uh, because that's where we can observe the organization that's billing Medicare and also calculate the size of each physician organization from that billing code. So from 2008 and 20 to 2014, which is the time period that we study, uh, so just over a six-year period, we found that the average organization size uh, more than doubles. The share of physicians associated with these large organizations increased from 43 to 56%. And these organizations were responsible for almost half of the visits in 2014, compared to just 32% in 2008. And, and there's also evidence showing that these trends continued past 2014 as well, and might have even accelerated during the pandemic. So that was the first aim. And the second aim was to understand well, what are the effects of this consolidation, right? So we've documented it. What are the effects? And the general concerns around consolidation is that uh, you have increased market power, a competition might decrease, therefore prices might increase. Now, on the other hand, proponents for consolidation argue that there should be efficiency gains that come from larger organizations. So the classical argument being economies of scale. Uh, so we wanted to understand how patient health spending changes after consolidation. Now, spending, though, is a, is a function of both price times quantity, right? So it's how, how much something costs versus multiplied by how much you use it. So this is where kind of focusing on Medicare has another advantage because prices are pretty highly regulated with, with, among this population. 
So we're able to isolate utilization effects from the price effects. And we find that in Medicare, just as in Medicare, going from a small to a large organization decreases overall spending by about 16%. And we find that that's mainly coming from a reduction in primary care and inpatient visits. I wanted to highlight this study for a couple of reasons. It shows that in a price-fixed market, consolidation can indeed lead to cost savings. It appears that within larger organizations, patients actually experienced more continuity of care and care coordination, which decreased redundancy in visits. However, there were a lot of limitations in this study. For example, the researchers didn't look at how consolidations were happening whether it was through organic hiring of clinicians or through mergers and acquisitions. Because of the way the data was collected, it also wasn't clear whether these large practices with cost savings were hospital-owned or independent. And most importantly, the fixed cost aspect of Medicare is very different from how commercial insurances pay. Medicare can cap prices in a way that commercial, private insurances do not. Ultimately, there is a lot more research to be done on cost and consolidation, and I, for one, am looking forward to how all the chips fall and whether we can thoughtfully use this data to make regulatory decisions. In Episode 3, we talked about how the FTC and DOJ have very little resources to look at the large number of mergers and acquisitions happening in all industries, much less healthcare. But there are also certain regulations that drive anti-competitive behavior in the healthcare industry. In a previous episode, I spoke with Dr. Farzad Mustashari, the former National Coordinator of Health Information Technology at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He has a wealth of knowledge on everything from payment to IT to competition within healthcare. He's also the CEO of Allidaid, a company that provides data and analytic services to independent practices to improve reporting and increase cost savings by allowing independent practices to group together as accountable care organizations. I'll break that down a little bit as we continue this conversation. But when I spoke with him, I asked him to clarify how he thinks we can improve competition in the primary care marketplace. The three things that I would say is, you know, this framework that Paul Ginsberg and Marty Gaynor and I wrote in JAMA about is stop digging the hole, right? So like stop doing payment policies that encourage consolidation, like facility fees. Two is stop anti-competitive behavior. So once they're big, stop them from using that power in a negative market, negative way. So things like information blocking. Information blocking is a practice that's done by health IT developers where the block is likely to interfere with access, exchange, or use of electronic health information. Or all or none contracting. All or nothing clauses require health plans to contract with all the hospitals in a hospital system, regardless of their price and quality. Or not allowing payers to actually do do tiering or steering. Steering is when a health insurance company uses tiered benefit levels and the associated out-of-pocket costs that members have to pay to incentivize members to use particular providers in the network. The insurer therefore steers its members to certain providers and away from others. So that's the second. And then the third is promoting competition, promoting new entrants. I was glad the the president's executive order called out specifically around non-competes. So allowing people to come in and say, hey, you want to leave the hospital, right? We have a doc who 
after 11 years at a hospital, is setting up his own practice now. If that hospital had a, a, a five-year, 50-mile non-compete, he wouldn't be able to set up his own independent practice. But at the end of the day, the, the biggest uh, problem with misalignment of incentives is the fundamental fee-for-service payment structure, where the reason why you get paid more is because you can demand a higher payment in the market, not because you deliver higher quality care. In episode two, we spent some time talking about fee-for-service and value-based care and facility fees as a primer for how all of these things can influence consolidation in primary care. Allidade, as a company, is trying to take advantage of the Medicare Shared Savings Program, or MSSP, which was permanently authorized by the Affordable Care Act. MSSP, per the CMS website, is a voluntary program that encourages groups of doctors, hospitals, and other healthcare providers to come together as an accountable care organization to give coordinated, high-quality care to their Medicare beneficiaries. I asked Dr. Moslashari to explain their model a little bit more. What we do is we sign up physician practices. So we signed up 300 practices last year in, in across, you know, th- we're in 30 states now. And those practices become part of, a, of an Allidade risk-bearing entity, a, a, a network. And then we negotiate with health plans and with the government for these value-based contracts based on a minimum risk pool, right? And we say, hey, if uh, everything else stays the same, you still keep paying the docs for the care they're delivering. But if we reduce cost below the certain limit, you will you will share with us and the practices the, the some of the savings you you receive, and then we work with the practices to give them the the kind of the what's the playbook for actually succeeding in this? What's the technology? What's the data you need? What's the coaching? What are the contracts? What are the regulatory issues? Last year on, on the Medicare side, it was just publicly announced. Our networks, we had 38 Medicare networks, saved $320 million. We were really proud to have been able to do that. 92% of our networks created a net benefit to Medicare, and we were about 10% of all the savings received in the program. Allidate is now developing a new ventures branch to support independent practices who want to open. I asked Dr. Mostashari to tell me a little bit more about that as well. So we're doing, running our core business here, right? Where we get practices and we get contracts and we get savings and the thing is running really well. But we started thinking, well, what are the contiguous businesses for Allidade? And we created new ventures. And one of the first things that, that came up was we should help our practices. We should help basically throughout every stage of the practice life cycle. So we should help create a really easy way for someone coming out of a hospital or coming out of an employment model to set up their own practice. I ended up connecting with Dr. Umar Bowers, who is taking advantage of the New Ventures program. When I came out of uh, residency, I was not thinking about, as most folks probably don't, hanging my own shingle. I ended up joining a large healthcare system in Charlotte, and I primarily was outpatient primary care but I did some hospitalist work with the same system as well. After a few years, uh, life changes, maybe a little bit of burnout, ended up unplugging and then joining a small um, privately owned practice where I worked for about five years. I had not considered independent primary care. I had not considered um, small groups. We're 
most of the residency training experiences and most of our exposures are with large integrated systems, right? Large academic institutions have their own primary care apparatus. So it was not something that I had been exposed to the opportunity to work outside of a large integrated system. I did get to understand that there is a path forward, an independent primary care, particularly if one aligns himself or herself with other organizations that share in the vision that independent primary care should be part of this ecosystem. While working at the small group practice, Dr. Bowers was introduced to Allidade. The small group practice had joined an ACO through Allidade, and when Dr. Bowers was inspired to finally start his own practice in North Carolina, getting the assistance of project management, capital, and a shared vision allowed him to step out onto a path that he hadn't even fathomed. In an earlier conversation I had with him, Dr. Bowers had reflected on the importance of this support, especially as a physician of color, where making a misstep could be far heavier for him and the health of his local community. They're looking at standing up, helping support new practices and helping provide resources for new practices. Because one of the main barriers for a new practice, whether someone coming out of training or whether someone that's been in practice is not just capital, right? I would submit it's it's not just capital. It's also capital plus expertise in certain areas that are completely foreign, completely new to physicians who've never run a practice before. So having a team of folks working with you to support you in that in that capacity is just as important, if not more important, than whatever capital is discussed and, and agreed upon. New Ventures will also be helping physicians do legacy planning, which is where physicians who have been practicing in a small independent practice can pass on the practice and that patient population to a younger physician who is looking to inherit a business. Many acquisitions of independent practices by private equity and large conglomerates or hospital systems are buyouts of practices where owner physicians are looking to retire. For me, it's really exciting to hear physicians get excited about being entrepreneurs and caring for their communities. Especially if we can get to a place where we can hit the perfect balance of autonomy and economies of scale, and maybe also have a primary care infrastructure that can keep different practices in sync with local hospitals, mental health programs, social work programs, etc., in order to care for a community as a community of partners. When I spoke to Dr. Kyle Leggett in Episode 2, he mentioned a project that he is currently working on in Colorado. I'll let him explain. So the Collaborative Community Response, or CCR, is this idea that in order to actually provide patient and community-centric care, we need to have collaboration across silos, specifically trying to call out collaboration between primary care, behavioral health, public health, social services, and community leadership, and to build a human infrastructure that is going to help move patients towards thriving and back that up with a integrated technical or IT infrastructure to allow for the tracking of metrics and data to support thriving as opposed to sick care. We have been working on it for over a year and a half, and are hoping that we can use the new ARPA, American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 funding that has gone to so many different locations in our state as a jumpstart for this program. But we have multiple communities across Colorado who have already started to build out this collaboration between these five pillars and have already met and decided where they want to start their focus on uh, 
maternal health and single mothers. The idea is in its early stages, but as we've heard, some of the challenges of starting up an independent practice is understanding where the community resources lie. Where do you refer your patients? How do you get that information back? How can you have seamless communication and safe patient information sharing between disjointed hospitals and independent practices without affecting patient care? Having an established data sharing system with open lines of communication between different services might make it a lot easier for doctors interested in independent primary care to actually lay down roots and start that practice instead of thinking that the only way to get that communication between silos is to join a vertically consolidated, multi-service system. As we wrap up this series, I think the takeaway for me has included a few different things. First, that under the current payment system, consolidation of primary care absolutely makes sense and is simply a response to the way payment and regulations are structured. In fact, even if we go to a fixed payment system, there is some level of consolidation that is really good for cost saving and efficiency when it comes to taking care of the health of patients and communities. But what I've learned throughout creating this podcast series is that it is possible to identify exactly where consolidation is perhaps artificially preferred, like in the case of certain payment models, and that there are ways to, at the very least, increase oversight on trends so that we have better market balance, lower costs, and more choice within the primary care market. I am so thankful to everyone at Health Affairs for allowing me the opportunity and the platform to craft this podcast series. It's been a crash course, and I can only hope that I've done it justice. There's a lot of information out there on consolidation and primary care, and my goal has been to distill it out in a way that makes sense to me, and I hope you found it interesting, engaging, and informative. I also wanted to specifically shout out the Health Affairs team, Jeff, Patty, Sarah, and Jessica. I know they've watched all of us fellows through our ups and downs as we've tried to figure out how to present these stories in a unique way. A huge thank you to everyone who spoke with me as I researched and collected audio for this series. I am so grateful for your time, knowledge, and kindness. If you like the music in this podcast series, please be sure to check out my friends and talented artists, So Brown and producer Jack Mason. And of course, to the other fellows, Sanya, Avni, Jared, I'm so proud to have learned from you and to have watched your stories develop. I'm really excited to have everyone take a listen to your series as well. As always, please make sure to share this episode and this series. And don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean the world to me to hear your feedback. From Health Affairs, you're listening to Peace Meal. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>